So we talked on uh, the first day about the cultivation of mind with mindfulness and concentration and effort. We talked yesterday about looking at behavior, especially around speech and action, and all of these pointing to our intention and then ultimately our view of the world. And that's what today is more about, which is um, what is often called prajna, these two together, right view and right intention. But in the original um, way this was talked about and the way we talk about it in, in Zen and Mahayana is a little bit bit different. Not, not as different, actually, as I think people claim, but, but a little bit different. But this, um, and you may have noticed that, that um, opinions about yourself and other people and the world arise when you sit still. Um, What do you do with them? They're there, and sometimes we're totally caught up, and they spin out for the whole zazen period. And then the bell rings, and what happened? I wasn't in the room. And then other times we catch them really quickly, and breath brings us back, or presence brings us back, or a sound brings us back. And so there's this back and forth between experiencing what's happening and being off somewhere, where the intimate connection with our experience, not that we're not experiencing, we are, but that the intimate connection with that experience is gone. So this project has more to do with insight, right? It has more to do with starting to realize what our intentions are and starting to realize what our views are. Because at first we may not know. There may be a thought, and it might be unkind to us. But why am I doing that? What's the reason I would speak this way to myself over and over and over and over again? It's not necessarily clear in the first um, glance. But as we settle, it's almost as if we start to settle into deeper layers of the way we um, view ourselves. And so, oh, maybe I do that because I think, if, and we can ask the question, right? What would happen is if this were not true or if this were not true? And then suddenly there's like, if this weren't true, then my, I wouldn't know what to do next and my life would start to collapse and all of that. Or this would happen. If this didn't, if if I if I if I didn't believe this, this would happen. Now that's really interesting because then we just dropped into view. If I didn't do this, if I didn't say this to myself, then this would happen. Okay, we have a view of the world that the world is a certain kind of place where certain kinds of things happen. If I don't act in certain ways, so we spend a lot of time with what might be called, you know, in contemporary parlance, the psychological 
aspect of um, that mental conditioning. We're going through our own particular process. that results in behaviors where we actually, where we either actually take care of ourselves or we harm ourselves. And um, why do I personally do it? What is going on for me that I personally do it? But the interesting thing, and I, I've talked with a few people about this this time and over other retreats, the interesting thing is this seems to always end up in very similar territory for everybody, whatever the details are, going down the rabbit hole of our views, what keeps us energized around a particular set of um, self-actions is getting down to somewhere where, well, if I don't do this, and if I don't behave this way, and if I don't maintain this identity, I'm out. I'm going to be kicked out. I'm going to either be exiled from the human family or thrown out into space or rejected or whatever it is. Whatever the story is, we're out. And, um, and what's so interesting about this process for, for the folks that I've been in contact with is it doesn't end up at a fear of death. It ends up at a fear of exile. which um, I think points to two very, very interesting things. One is ironic, and the other one is really informative. They're both informative, but one is supports us quite a bit. The ironic one is that that which is afraid of deep separation and exile is the one who's creating the separation and exile. the one who's actually recreating this notion of self that's terrified of being separate. And yet, all the separation is coming from the one that's terrified of being separate. And really, letting that die is what ends the separation. Not negotiating with the world until we no longer feel it. That one cannot negotiate until it feels whole. You don't negotiate and manipulate and get things just right until you feel whole. The opposite. You drop the entire desire to be anything but what you are at a given moment, and then you're whole because you already are. So that's one side. The other side is that this deep anxiety around exile points to what the Buddha realized in um, waking up, which would make total sense. If what we are at base is completely dependently co-arisen, that's our nature. That's what life is and that's what I am. Then of course, of course, what's at bottom of egoic terror and why it does everything it does being separate. We can't, there's no surviving outside of that connection. That's why the connection's always there. 
So we don't have to manipulate to construct wholeness. We just need to relax and wholeness will be there. So, um, we spend a lot of years looking at the way we negotiate and manipulate and tell stories and believe stories. And we have to do that. There's no bypass. We don't get to jump over our own particularity, our own specificity, to some general truth about the nature of the world and do it that way. We don't get to do it. The general happens through the particular. The general awakening happens through the particular. There is a way we wake up in the same way, but it never looks the same way. It never happens the same way. The realization is a similar realization, but it doesn't happen the same way. It doesn't even happen in one religion. It happens in all kinds of religions. There are all kinds of paths to this realization. But it is the same realization. As we get deeper into looking at these, um, looking at this conditioning, this conditioning the Buddha called Sankara, or in Pali, or Samskara in Sanskrit. Um, this is the conditioned nature of our minds, the conditioned habit patterns, the things that we carry on, what we call karma karmic habit patterns. And as we go through the specific of it, the specificity of it, so I have one particular story, or I feel despair, or I feel whatever it is, once it gets stable enough, once the mind is stable enough, we can do more than just simply know it's despair. We can turn the mind toward what is the nature of despair. What is despair? Okay, so we're pretty quick on Dukkha, that's, that's pretty good. I think we're in agreement. Um, there were three that the Buddha asked us to look at in every situation. So we have an object in front of us, and we're stable now. It's not overrunning our minds. We have some distance with it. And by distance, I mean stability. Actually, we're quite intimate with it. But, um, but we're not doing this all the time. So it might be better to say stable intimacy. Um, we note that despair is dukkha. If we stay with it long enough, we also note it goes away and comes back and goes away and comes back. Now intellectually, this is not that big of a deal. Okay, yeah, I know despair is impermanent. But if we let that realization into our body, it changes things because once our body admits that despair is impermanent, then it can no longer trust it as a ground. We have to actually let the impermanence, the understanding of anicca, be deep enough that we no longer trust it as a base or a ground. Because these things wouldn't keep recurring if we didn't trust them as a ground. They just wouldn't. They would come up and be like, huh, 
and then they would go away because our relationship to it would be quite different. But then also, um, another aspect to it is if we get into the detail, into the energy, into where it is in the body, if we look at the thoughts associated with it that flick in and flick out, we can't find solid there. We can't find a clear, bounded, solid thing called despair. The word points to it. It's generally, we generally have an idea that we know what we're talking about. But in the actual experiential world, there's this cloud we call despair that we actually have more power in than we think we do. Because it's not a permanent giant beast that is the ground of our reality. Now the Buddha said these, these three marks, I say this over and over again about these three marks of existence because I think it is so important in terms of our freedom. So in the Pali, the first mark is Sabe Sankara Anicca. Sabe Sankara Dukkha. Okay, I'll see what that means. Sankara is samskara, karmic formations, conditioned, conditioned world. So he's saying that all of conditioned all of the conditioned formations in our experience are impermanent and are unsatisfactory. That's the nature of everything that is arising that is conditioned, right? Which is what we know. That's what we know as the world. But the next line changes. It says, Sabe Dhamma Anatta, which means all dharmas have no self. So he's talking about condition formations in the first part, and I'll talk about this in a less intellectual way in a second. But, um, it's, but it's important to know that it's in here like this, because the teaching gets confused that the conditioned um, formations are impermanent and dukkha but that all dharmas are without self. So he's saying that not all dharmas are impermanent, and not all dharmas are dukkha. That the unconditioned, that which we can actually rest on on ground, as the ground, gives us a sense of stability and gives us a sense of relief. That there is an aspect to experience. It isn't Greg and all the stuff that has to do with Greg and personality and history and all that stuff. It's not any of that. But when, that, when we see that clearly, there is something else that is not wrapped up in that. That is throughout everything but isn't karma in the way the Buddha used it. Now we have, ex people have experienced this. We experience it to greater or lesser length of time and stability, 
but we experience it. And um, it's important to know that we do. Because one of the things that is so important about this practice is the increase of faith. The increase of faith in life. Because if that isn't there, the courage to release from our conditioning is nearly impossible. It's just very difficult. The Buddha was clear that we have to recognize both when we are not feeling ease and when we are feeling ease. The mind gets in this habit of noticing all the times we don't. But it's not in the habit necessarily of noticing when we do. And you may notice an ease with all of the detailed attention that we give toward our suffering. Similar detailed attention can be given to ease. Huh. There's not an arising of agitation right now. There's not an arising of some self that needs to be a certain way. I'm just lying in a meadow. And that's that. These moments happen. So what the hell is going on? You know, I mean, why is that the case? What are the conditions for that? And we, it'd be as, as yogis, in the original meaning of that term, be curious. Be curious what the conditions are um, for the arising of a lack of dukkha. For a sense of deep settledness and ground that isn't looking for any particular object to be the source of that ground. It just is there. So, one of the things that gets a lot of radio play in Zen is this notion of emptiness. And... Um, and I want to talk a little bit about it because they, they're, they're connected. This, um, so when we're talking about prajna and deep realization, when we're looking at these things that are arising and we're realizing this third mark of there's no there there, we can't find anything solid, that frees us from being caught. The point of that realization is not because it's some otherworldly thing but because the mind is creating the objects that are arising in it as something solid, and then, our in, then because of that view, all of our intentions that follow have to do with trying to grab onto it or shoving away the things that are all permanent beings. Our mind is in this because of the view. So the view leads to the intentions and then all the actions that come forward from that. why there is such a focus in Zen on what Bodhidharma said, nothing holy, everything is empty, is that the minds need to turn certain objects into holy things to grab onto to make my life better is the thing that's going to make your life hell. So that's going to make your life very difficult. So emptiness is trying to encourage the mind to look deeply. The teaching of emptiness is trying to encourage the mind to look deeply into the nature of things until we see that and then release. When the view changes, then the logic doesn't follow anymore. 
What am I going to grab? I know there's, it's not, I know there's nothing there I can grab and hold. So the logic changes. But this is the part where I think that we have to be very, very, very careful. We come to practice usually with a very, um, and I talked about this in the past, we come to practice with a very transcendent notion of what's going to happen here. I'm going to get out of this one. The one I came with, I'm going to get rid of in some way. And so when we hear the teaching of emptiness, we go, ooh, this is the way. I'm now going to just dump this thing into, and I'm going to be emptiness. <coughs> and, the, and sometimes the Dharma gets taught that way. By people who are, in my opinion, confused. Um... What realization is for us, ultimately, in this school, and I think in Buddhism, what our understanding is. And what the Buddha realized when he was trying to understand what the nature of awakening was, and he had a memory back to being a child under a tree, watching life, and he said, maybe that's it. I'll sit with that in mind. Is not dumping everything for the sake of some transcendent other place. But to allow ourselves to deeply enter into life. So there is this term in, Zen, in Buddhism called suchness, tatata. Is how what it is in um, Pali. And this is a very different thing. This is when all of that or at least the times that that projection is not actively happening, the times we're not grasping it, the times we're not involved in it, there is a deep experience of life, of one as life. And there's an intimacy that's present, and we've all touched this. We've all touched this. There's an intimacy present that is, has nothing to do with me or anything I'm doing at that moment. I just am what is. And there's a profound rest there, and there's a, almost a glisteningness to what is. And this is what we're falling into, settling into. The Buddha's name was the Tathagata, not the Shunyagata. It was not the one who went in or disappeared into emptiness. It was the one who went in and disappeared into suchness, into the nature of life, into life itself. Our life, our realization, our clarifying of our own conditioning is so that we can deeply enter into life. We have to have a lot of generosity with ourselves and patience in this process. It takes time, but the, it's very good news. It's very good news at the end. Even though there's no good news for the ego, it's very good news for us as bodies in the world. 
One way of understanding this when we're talking about the two truths is this how they're reconciled. This idea of in one way we're a conditioned reality. We're conditioned people with our personalities and our discernible differences. And in another way at the same time none of those things exist. They're totally projections. And so when they're together, we're free. If we're in one, we're miserable. If we're in the other, we're useless and miserable. But together, we're free. Because our nature is connection itself. Because our nature is relationship itself not somebody in relationship. That's already too much. Our nature is relationship itself. Now this is interesting to be with ourselves in Zazen, right? What is it to sit here just as a relationship? Everything that comes up, treat as relationship. Every thought that arises, every moment of joy and despair, every whatever it is, not I'm here, that's happening to me, but just a big, complex mesh of relationship that I can't tease apart from each other. I can discern, try to understand what's going on, what leads to happiness and gentleness and rest and settledness. I can see what leads to unhappiness, but I can't yank anything off the mix. It's all in there. It's all teaching us. I was talking to Laura few days ago about these, so there were these, at the end of the 20th century, there were all these lists of um, the best song of the 20th century, right? And, um, and two songs kept coming up over and over and over again that, I don't know why it struck me at the time, but I realized a few days ago why it struck me at the time. And one was Over the Rainbow, okay? And the other was What a Wonderful World. There were other songs too, like Winter Wonderland, and there were all these other songs. <laughs> but I didn't, for some reason, I didn't viscerally care about those songs. But these two songs kept striking me, like these two songs. And they're pretty good songs, and they kind of had a major impact on the 20th century. But, um, and most people know a lot of the words. And then I thought, um, a few days ago, this crossed my mind, I thought, because they're the full spectrum of religion, on one side, and this is what we usually come in with, is this impulse to get somewhere else. Where troubles melt, what is it? Where troubles melt like lemon drops. 
high above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. <laughs> that's the emptiness route. <laughs> that's when we solidify emptiness or enlightenment or any one of these words that become the rainbow that we go over. And there's no more misery. Of course, what did Glenda say? You were always wearing... She should have never went anywhere, right? It's Dogen's, don't, why go off to dusty lands? She went off to dusty lands and then in the end was scolded for it. But, um, but then there is, what a wonderful world. Still honor the rainbows. The rainbows are in, what a wonderful world. But a big difference in how they're treated the color of the rainbows are so pretty in the sky, but also on the faces of people walking by. Friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? But they're really saying, I love you. And that song always gets to me, because that's the truth. That's our way. Our way is not, that's suchness. One's getting obsessed with transcendence and leaving. The other one is the truth, is bringing the realization once our projections fall apart. It's seeing in every face the rainbow. It's knowing that the sacredness and the preciousness of life is in everything. It's waking up, it's not even, it's coming to us. You know, Dogen says really clearly, and this will, in this light, these words may mean something a little different to you now. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. That's our emptiness part. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. To forget the self is to feel the rainbow in people. To forget the self is to recognize that love is in all the greetings. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the body and minds of others, drop away. The dropping away doesn't mean that they suddenly, they're not discernible, they're a big mush that we can't tell apart. No, the dropping away it's the dropping away of all of our projections onto those bodies and minds. Onto our own bodies and minds. But this is very clear. We don't get to jump to that point. It starts with to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. That's the process. But in the end, no trace of realization even remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. Even realization itself falls away. We don't need it once life is manifesting itself as life. To carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion that myriad things come forth and experience themselves. That myriad things comes forth and experience themselves. 
is awakening. We just get out of the way. I just keep thinking, I, there's another Dogen quote, another Dogen quote. Um, <laughs> once you start talking about this, Dogen has it down. I mean, he has this stuff down. Um, oh, I will read something. I am going to read another thing from Dogen. This is the beginning of the Genjo Koan. This is so fantastic. Some people say this is his entire teaching in one paragraph. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, birth, death, and there are Buddhas and there are sentient beings. This is the world of cultivating practice. There are differences. We do follow a path and progress. We do unfold. We do move from being miserable to happy. All that's true. Some people do have more realization in their bodies over time than others. Next line. As the myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient being, no birth, and no death. And none of that's true. Because all of us are already living in awake mind. We may not be, we may be, as I said before, loyal to little parts of it, but it's already there. And that being the case, none of those distinctions are relevant. Although it may not be our experience yet. The Buddha way is leaping clear of the many and the one. It's leaping clear of these distinctions between even the relative world and the world where none of these things exist. And that leaping clear allows it to come together. Many in the one. Thus, there are birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddha. So it ends up with, yes, these things do exist, but they exist in a very different way. Faces exist as rainbows, and handshakes exist as love. But it doesn't end. Even with all of that realization, even with all of that, if attachment comes up, last line, yet in attachment, blossoms still fall, and in aversion, weeds still spread. So there is no end. There isn't some final moment where we've built up enough now we don't have to worry about attachment and aversion anymore. We still have to be always paying attention to this mind. We have to always be taking responsibility for the intentions and the views of this one. That never ends. So, he says in the Fukanza Zenge, Dogen again, different chant. He's got this great line. And this should be, you, you, you think that this is going to be like an over the rainbow moment. Because he says, you should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech. 
and learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. Body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will be manifest. If you want to attain suchness, practice suchness without delay. Now, what in the world does that mean? Right? And you would hope, okay, this is where he's going to show me the way out. I'm going to practice suchness without delay. Next line. He's going to tell you how to practice suchness without delay. Rizaz in a quiet room is suitable. Eat and drink moderately. <laughs> Cast aside all involvements and cease all affairs. Do not think good or bad. Do not administer pros and cons. Cease all the movements of the conscious mind. The gauging of all thought and views. Have no designs on becoming a Buddha. Zazen has nothing whatever to do with sitting or lying down. At your seat of your regular sitting, spread out a thick matting and place a cushion above it. Sit either in full lotus and on and on and on. That is practicing suchness without delay. Honored followers of Zen, do not be afraid of the true dragon. Actually, first, honored followers of Zen, long accustomed to groping for the elephant over the rainbow, don't be afraid of the true dragon in the faces passing by or in your own. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.